0: Maybe that's better. Oh, I do want to say uh, thank you to the WIC. Last week's luncheon was uh, awesome. Thank you so much for all of you ladies for putting that together, for contributing soups and sandwiches to that. I wish I had four or five stomachs to be able to go through and have eaten all of them. But it was a wonderful time of fellowship. And so I look forward to many more of those opportunities. I think another one coming up next month. So it um, uh, will be just just great. But thank you so much, and, and uh, especially to Jane Gibson. She's not here under the weather this morning, but uh, Jane did a lot of work. So if you get an opportunity, just tell Jane how much you appreciated all her work. The tables and everything were doing, so we're very thankful for that. Uh, Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and uh, we're looking at verse 12 of Matthew 7, but we'll begin reading in verse 7 uh, to pick up a little bit of the context before we go into our verse. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. It is God's word, inerrant and infallible, authoritative and sufficient in all that it says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? For whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You've caused it to be preserved all of these many years, these millennia. You've been very kind to cause it to be written down and to preserve it, even through the Middle Ages when it fell on hard times and it was simply monks in monasteries who were copying and copying and copying. But God, You've been so good to us. And we praise You. Lord, help us now to to sit with ears to hear, to listen Uh, to what You would say to us. We ask that You would teach us. You are the great teacher, and we need You. Father, in our fallen estate, we need You to show us what is true. Help us to discern the true from the false so that we may honor You and Christ Your Son. We ask all of this in His name. Amen. There's a Jewish story about a couple of rabbis, Uh, the first rabbi was named Shammai, and the second rabbi was named Hillel, this is not a joke, I know it sounds like I'm uh, starting out with a joke this morning, Uh, but you ought to be accustomed, I I don't start out that way, but there are two rabbis, uh, one by the name of Shammai, and the other rabbi's name was Hillel. And there was a Gentile man who who first, he approached the rabbi Shammai, and he said to Shammai, "Uh, I want you to convert me, and I will convert to Judaism if you can teach me um, uh, all of the Torah, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy, teach me all of its teaching while I stand on one foot, And Shammai took a measuring rod and he thrust it into the man's chest and he pushed him away and he chastised him as if to say, how dare you say that to me? What a ridiculous thing for me to uh, teach you the whole law while you stand on one foot. So the Gentile man, he was not dissuaded. And so he went to the other rabbi, to Rabbi Hillel, and he said to him the same thing. I will convert to Judaism. If you can teach me the whole law, all of Torah, while I stand on one foot, foot. And Rabbi Hillel responded. And he looked at him and he said this. He said, that which is hateful to you do not do to another. That is the entire Torah. All the rest is its interpretation. Now, Go study. And that's what he said to the man. This is the whole Torah. Uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. This is all of the teaching. Whatever is hateful to you, don't do that to anybody else. The rest of it is interpretation of that principle. And in some sense, Hillel was right, wasn't he? That's the whole teaching of the law. Do unto others. But... In another sense, Rabbi Hillel did not go far enough. He presented it in its negative sense, in a passive sense. This is all you are to do. Don't cause someone else harm. Whatever you find harmful, whatever you find hateful, don't do that to anyone else. But the true teaching... Remember, Christ now coming to us as a true rabbi, as a true teacher, as your prophet and your king is in teaching you now the whole law. And he teaches us in this passage that it is, it is his will for you and me to fulfill God's law by actively seeking the good of others. You see the difference. On the one hand, there's, it's an entirely passive principle. Don't cause anybody harm. But Christ says to you, actually, you must go further than that. You must anticipate, think about the needs of others, and actively plan to do good to them. This is the law of God. As we think about the passage, remember that Jesus has just told you something very important about God your Father. Go back up in chapter 7 uh, to verse 11 then. Uh, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You see, here's the the principle flowing down out of God your Father. Jesus has said to us, look, as He's looking at the crowd surrounding Him, uh, just to encourage them a little bit, He says, you're evil. Look at all of you. Y'all are evil people. And yet... When you ask Him for good things, your Father who is in heaven gives them to you. This sets up the context for us a little bit. God is calling on us, Christ, the incarnate Christ, is calling on us to imitate our Father by doing good even to those around us who we might consider to be evil. Or as He Himself has called them, the dogs and the pigs of the world. We are to do good to them. First of all, then, notice, as we call it, the golden rule is Christ's will for you. The golden rule is Christ's will for you. Why do we call it the golden rule? Well, rule, perhaps because many of our parents used a ruler to enforce this upon each and every one of us. If we uh, refuse to obey the golden rule to do uh, unto others as we would have them do unto us, our, our parents ingrained it into us with a yardstick or something along those lines. But there are legends that this, this rule, this principle, do unto others, goes uh, throughout many religions. Zoroastrianism. Islam, many of these religions have a similar principle. The Greek mythologies have a similar principle to this golden rule. It was, uh, uh, legend has it that it was enshrined in gold on the throne of an emperor. Hence the golden rule. But notice the very first thing in verse 12. So then... Jesus is drawing a conclusion for you. In other words, in light of what I have said here, I want to give you something of a summary conclusion. In light of everything that I have said to you, that you must be the salt and the light of the world, that you must have a a biblical, a heavenly perspective about you as you go on this pilgrimage through the world. Here is a conclusion. Here is a summary principle. Here is something that you can go and, and take with you and teach these little ones who are with you. Actively seek the good of others. Matthew Henry and his commentary on Jesus um, trial. You remember at Jesus' trial in Mark chapter 15 and verse 1, one of the things that we learned there is the, the Pharisees and, and, and the priests, the high priests, they had met all night long and they tried Jesus all night long. This is when they're pulling out his beard, asking him, him if he's the son of God and this sort of thing, all night long, which was against the law. Even in Jewish law. Um, they're doing this thing, and, and, and Mark begins in chapter 15, verse 1, with these words, and he said, the first thing in the morning, this is like 3 a.m., they went to Pilate's house to drag him out of bed to, see, to, to cause him to put Jesus to death, to condemn him. And Matthew Henry notes this, he said, notice how wicked men rise early to plan evil, How much more should we who are righteous rise early to make plans to do good? And this is exactly what Jesus is calling on you to do in this statement. Not just that we're passively not trying to inflict harm on someone, but I am actively thinking about how to do good to others. How actively to do good to my classmates, to my siblings. How actively to do good to my wife or my husband or my neighbor. Jesus states it in a condition, notice again, verse 12. So then, and there's a weird Greek construction here. uh, Thus, he might say, uh, in all things whatsoever, if you want other men to do good to you. Likewise, also, you yourselves must do good to them. He puts it in a condition that you can understand. Immediately, our ears perk up. If you want men to do good to you, well, who doesn't want men to do good to them? Who doesn't want when you go down and talk to the bank teller and you explain to her that all the issues you've had with your account are not your fault, they are the fault of the bank. How many of you want the bank teller to say, oh, of course, we'll waive all the fees, we'll do everything that you're asking us to do. You want men to do good to you. When when you need mercy, when you're in the wrong, don't you want men to say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Oh, but when the shoe's on the other foot. Things change, don't they? Well, this is what Jesus is saying to you. If you want other men to do good to you, then you first must begin by thinking about yourself. Remember when we were talking about judgment and Jesus said, stop judging others. For with the judgment or the condemnation that you use, it will be used against you. And with the, the gra- graciousness, the charity that you use toward others, it will be that same uh, charity will be used to you. How do you know to get the speck out of your brother's eye if you don't first begin by dealing with the log in your own eye? It, you see, even there with judgment, Jesus is saying to you, if you're worried about conduct, begin with your own. This is another way of saying it. You need to think about yourself. Jesus centers the expectation on you, not on the way that people treat you. He's putting you in the driver's seat. I appreciate how John John Calvin thinks about this. He says, we are here informed that the only reason why so many quarrels exist in the world and why men inflict so many mutual injuries on each other is that they knowingly and willingly trample justice under their feet. Listen, while every man rigidly demands that it shall, shall be maintained towards himself, isn't this where we are today? Oh, who has offended me today? Let me get on my Twitter feed and see what this person or that person has said so that I can know who I need to unfriend, unfollow, or cancel. We are all about offense. When Jesus says, when the shoe is on the other foot, you demand mercy. But when you look at your neighbor, you demand justice. Consider just a second the antithesis, and this is something that as parents and grandparents, you probably find yourself reiterating often. That Jesus did not say, Do unto others as they do unto you. Your, your sibling, your brother, your sister stole your stuffed animal. That doesn't mean that you take uh, theirs and rip the head off. That's not how you accomplish justice. But the reason that we have to say that so frequently is why? Because that's our default position. That's my instinct. That's my knee-jerk reaction. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, what do I do? Well, I'm going to cut him off in traffic. As a child, when someone calls you a name, your goal is to come up with a stronger insult. We had your mama joke contest on the playground as a young man. And what are we doing? We're aiming for the heart, aren't we? When I cut you, I want it to hurt. Right? You cut me. You cut me with a knife. I'm going to cut you with a sword you hurt me with a club I'm going to shoot you we want to wound so we immediately recognize that this command is not just demanding that we put certain behaviors into place is it it's actually telling me there are certain desires that I have to put to death I have to die I have to die to certain instincts that I have because of sin. You and I, we are naturally like the fool who, according to the Proverbs, takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. I don't listen. Oh, I want to be heard. But I'm not going to listen. This is why when Jesus is commanding this command, it it is not simple. This is not just about social justice. This does not make the gospel uh, mean that we just need to go out and start doing good to people and this culture is going to change. When we look really deeply at what Jesus is commanding us to do, I recognize I can't. This is going to take the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. I have to die to me. It is only the Spirit who enables us to know what is truly good, to desire what is truly good, and to do what is truly good. And apart from His work, we will only do what is right in our own eyes. Remember Joseph? We go back to Joseph pretty frequently, don't we? The Scripture set Joseph up and his brothers and the whole episode is, is one that we should look to for righteous living But who can forget the way that he came to the very end of his life in Genesis chapter 50. And his brothers were scared after Jacob died. And they thought, oh, now Joseph is going to put the screws to us, buddy. He's going to cash that check. And what did Joseph do? He treated his brothers with kindness and mercy. How was he able to do that? How was Joseph able to go through slavery, go through a false imprisonment and everything that he suffered in Egypt, a land not his own, and come to the end and have the moment when the hammer is is leveled over his brother's heads to pull it away and to show them mercy? How was he able to do that? He was able to do it because he saw everything that he suffered in his life from God's perspective. He was able to look at his brothers and say, you know what, you didn't do that to me. That was God's will. He knew that God ordained everything, even the insults that he suffered from his brothers. God ordained all of these things for his good. And so he was able to show them mercy because he knew he received it. It is Christ's will that you abide by the golden rule and that you recognize how this applies to your heart. If you worry about how men treat others, then your first concern ought to be how you treat others. Notice, secondly, though, the golden rule is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The golden rule is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus says something very interesting here, going back to Matthew 7, 12. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus uh, began with this uh, thus or therefore statement, and he ends here with this for. It's an explanatory statement. He's saying, why should we take this to heart? Why should we care about this at all? Well, it's exactly like Rabbi Hillel stated. This is the law. If you want to understand what the Torah, what the prophets are saying to you, what they are teaching, this is it. You can sum it up in just these few words. And this is the connection then to everything that has come before. Remember that Jesus said uh, early in chapter 5, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've called you to be the light, the salt and the light of the world. I want you to conduct yourselves in in certain ways. Remember, we went through all of the antitheses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, do not hate your brother. All of these kinds of things. And here we come to this summary statement. And Jesus is saying, I am teaching you exactly what the law and the prophets teach you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This statement is not telling you to become a law unto yourself. We could mistake it, couldn't we? Well, how do I want others to treat me? Well, that's not the right question. The right question is, When I go to God's word and I begin to apply God's law to myself and I begin to build my ethics based on the Ten Commandments that God has handed down, what does that look like? How does it command me to treat others? And before I ask the question of how Bob and Sue are obeying God's commands, I need to look at myself, how am I doing it? How am I loving my neighbor as myself? This is the principle that we learn from God. As some look at this, they scratch their heads and they wonder, isn't it interesting that when Christ tells us the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, there is no reference to obedience to God? Why would that be? Why would Christ here leave out the first command, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. Why would he leave that out? Well, perhaps for this reason that you cannot honor God and treat others shamefully. I want to invite you to turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 58. In Isaiah 58, we're sort of right in the middle of Isaiah's transition. Well, chapter 40, he began talking about the future of Israel, but he does have some condemnations left for them. And chapter 58 is one of those. It's, this is the passage where we get um, our understanding of uh, how we ought to treat God's Sabbath day. But notice what he says in Isaiah 58, verse 1 uh, and following. Just listen here. Cry aloud, do not hold back, Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. Now listen to this. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And here's the question then from Jacob. Why have we fasted, as you command, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, God answers, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, "...not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh?" Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall bring up, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You see what he's saying? You think that you are honoring me. You seek me, you hold fast, you look very religious, and yet you treat your neighbors poorly. You cannot honor God and treat others shamefully. Therefore, this is the fulfillment of the law. The whole thing is encapsulated here. You will honor God by treating others with honor, to looking to the good of others. But we ought to know one, one other thing here that this command is not antithetical to justice. In other words, well, well, don't some men demand justice? How will we have a just society if we're always seeking to do good to others? Am I to show mercy to all men if they break the law? If they cause harm? Does this demand that I not prosecute them? And the answer is absolutely not. But we think of it this way. Instead, we must think of this command even when justice is required. Boy, do we need this sermon in our day and age. What does it mean? Well, if a man has broken the law, we ought to seek with diligence that he have uh, uh, unbiased jury a just judge, every man should get the same treatment that I would demand. If I have to go to court, I want him to have right witnesses, right evidence. I want everything to be upheld just as I would have it upheld for myself. It is this command, do you see, that will cause me to seek justice, a fair trial, a just sentence in behalf of others. The golden rule is the fulfillment of God's law and His prophets. I want you to notice one thing lastly. The golden rule requires understanding of Christ's Gospel. We we might say it in this way. We might ask a question. How does the golden rule lead me to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, because when I read this, I notice... In Matthew 7, I notice that this is not something that comes naturally to me. By nature, I'm the kind of person that when you insult me, I take that inside I, I plant it in my heart, and I pour water on it, and I bring forth the fruit. I, I, there's, a, there's a part of me that enjoys feeling bitter toward other people. There's a part of me that enjoys when I get a friend over, and we start chatting, I can talk to you about all the inefficiencies, all the inadequacies. Adequacies. Let me choose a different word here. Everything wrong with everybody else. I I enjoy that. I nurture it like a little plant. I want it to grow up and have roots in my heart. I actually enjoy bitterness. I treasure it. Instead of heaven... I don't hide God's promises in my heart. I hide insults and the wrongs that have been done against me. I don't savor Christ and His work. I savor bitterness and the possibility of revenge. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us a parable that applies in so many situations. It's the parable of a man who came before a king. And, and this particular man, he, he owed the king lifetimes upon lifetimes of debt. And he pleaded with that king and he said, oh king, I, I can't repay. There's no possible way. My own my family were going to become beggars on the street. I cannot repay you. And the king looked at him and he said, you know what? We're going to wipe the slate clean. Don't worry about the debt. And that servant walked out the door and he looked over to his right and there was a man he knew that owed him a few dollars. And he went to that man and he demanded payment. And the man couldn't pay. He wrung his neck and he had him thrown in prison. And Christ uses that parable to show us something about ourselves. That when you think about yourself in reference to other people and the wrongs that you perceive that others have done against you, you need to think of that wrong in light of the wrong that you have committed against Christ. You need to think about what He has forgiven you. An infinite debt has been taken away from your Uh, from your account and laid upon the account of Christ Jesus. Someone else has paid it in your behalf. The gospel teaches you that your sin against God is an infinite debt and your brother's sin against you is mere pennies. Brothers and sisters, it is Christ's will for you to fulfill His law By actively seeking to do good to others. Not passively, but actively thinking about bringing good into the lives of others. The the golden rule, think of this, it is a law of freedom. How is that? It's a law of freedom because otherwise you are ruled by your emotions. You're enslaved to how others treat you. I'm only going to treat other people the way that they treat me and no better. You are like an unreasoning animal that rest- responds on instinct. You're like those two dogs that are hovering around one dog dish and snarling at one another. Christ sets you free. Don't worry about how they treat you. You do good. This is your principle. You do good. In whatever the situation, you seek to honor me by doing good to others. Controlled by the Holy Spirit who seeks to implement the love of Christ through you. This is God's will for you. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we recognize preeminently that Christ came to do good for us. We recognize preeminently that He came to do good for us even when we were His enemies. That He shed His blood. He died in behalf of a people who rejected and hated Him. We ask, therefore, that You would work through us. Help us to put to death those desires that that crave the harm of other people. Help us to kill that and instead to desire the good for all people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.